our previous this morning. And uh, last week we looked at uh, recognizing our leadership and we, we looked at um, the, uh, the verses there at 12 and 13 and for time's sake I'm going to just speed through this. It's all review. Uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, but talking about recognizing our leadership and how we're, we're supposed to be um, esteeming them and uh, acknowledging them, understanding what does a, a mature biblical leader look like within a local church and how do we identify them and then how do we respond uh, to leaders and how we're supposed to esteem them, how we're supposed to um, recognize them, appreciate them. And we looked at some of the word definitions of those words that Paul uses there. And then... Um, and there in verse 13 and then we talked about agreeing around church leaders and how that we can have different opinions or, or different preferences uh, but God establishes leadership within churches so the church can move forward and so we talked about the importance of agreeing with them and and that phrase there um, I think it's at the end of verse 13 be at peace among yourself and we talked about why would Paul put that at the end of instructions about how to respond to leaders well because uh, we might not always agree totally with the methods or the differences of the church leader, but we're called at peace. So we have to kind of learn to put, our, put aside our preferences and our opinions, not that we can't ever bring them up or have discussions and conversations with leaders. Uh, sometimes leaders need more input. Sometimes there's a blind spot they need clarity on. And so we need to And we talked about how the leader is accountable, accountable to Christ, so he's under the uh, authority of Christ o- over him, and then he, or and sometimes she, stands on the authority. The leader is is held captive, if you will, in their accountability between those two authorities. Move away from both, and so we we discuss those things at length. And the the idea to be at peace. I wanted to add a couple of verses. Uh, number seven. Uh, it says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their are over us, those that are leading the church, position that God has directed them to, and they ha- probably have a spiritual gift related to that, like administration and those types of things. And so this is a call in Hebrews that parallels what we just studied in First Thessalonians, uh, that we need to, how do we respond to church leaders? We, can, we, we follow their faith. We don't set them up and worship them. We're, we're worshiping the Lord, uh, but we're, we're under their authority. And in verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 17 of chapter 13 um, is even more direct. It just says obey. Obey and be submissive. And a lot of times uh, Americans and adults in general are like, hey, that's, you know, that's obey, that's for my kids. Uh, but really, in Scripture, this, this type of obedience is for all of us to, to come under the authority of leaders. Now, we already uh, discussed, you know, the caveats of is the leader a biblically sound, mature leader? And if that is already the case, then, then this is how we're supposed to respond to them. And that can be difficult at times. We have our own ideas and things, and God is, set, God is calling us, hey, I know you have those ideas and those opinions, but you need to come under the authority of the, the structure. And, and I was thinking how important leadership within a church is. Where would we be as a church without a leadership structure? I think we'd all be sitting around looking at one another and going, well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What, what does she want to do? What, what does he want? What do they want? And, and we'd, we'd be spinning our wheels, and, and there would be not, no real vision 
because there would just be this evenness and we'd all just be looking uh, for somebody to step up and that's exactly in any situation, any organization requires someone to step up and lead. And in, in the church's case, God calls them. They don't just step up, God calls them up and says, I want you to lead my church. And so uh, it's so important that to remember Christ designed his church to have structure and to be organized within a leadership type of structure and we need to pursue and embrace that if we're going to be successful as a church. So that was a recap of last week. Now let's go into the second part. Um, If you're following along on your outline, there are some study guides back there uh, in the back if you'd like one. But uh, the second main point that we're looking at is that not only do we need to recognize our leadership but we, if we want to be growing and be maturing in our Christian walk, we need to be reaching out to one another in love. And that's exactly what this next um, passage, the next two verses, 14 and 15, tell us. So let's look at what those say. Uh, so First Thessalonians, if you're not there already, chapter 5 and verse number 14. It says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So now we move away from the theme of working and how to understand leaders and how we respond to leaders and those that are being led by the leaders. And we move to the, all the one another's within the church. So this is how we're all supposed to respond to each other, regardless of station. And I want to start by looking at this word exhort. You see it there in the verse. Uh, we exhort you, brethren. And we've looked at this word previously in this study, and Paul has used it in the original word there um, a few times already. And I won't go back and review all of those things, but I want to point it out again because I think it sets the context for everything he's about to say. If you remember, um, exhorting, it's that alongside type of word. It means to call someone alongside, uh, kind of put your arm around them, call them to your side, and help them move forward with whatever the thing is that they need to do. And that's what Paul's doing to this church. He's saying, guys, come alongside me here. I'm putting my arm around you figuratively because he wrote this letter from a distance, but he's saying, I'm with you guys. I want to help you move forward. I'm coming alongside to exhort you. And that's uh, an important thing to keep in the back of our mind as we move through the text because that's exactly the attitude that we need to have as we relate to each other. And we're going to see that developed even deeper as we go through the verses. So we need to have a hands-on approach to what we're about to learn out of these verses. And that's exactly what Paul has. It's a hands-on, it's life-on-life approach to ministry as we minister to one another. And that's what the theme is. So um, going into the verses again, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, uh, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And then we'll get into verse 15 as we go along. I want to focus on that phrase, though, be patient with all. Um, we've got, you know, the apostle's arm is around our shoulder, okay? He's helping us go through this passage. We begin to see that the church is made up of all different people 
who are at all different stages and seasons in their Christian walk. And so it's a very important mark of maturity to have the ability to recognize that different people are in different seasons of life, different seasons of their Christian life. And understanding how to respond to each of those specific things. And I love that about these verses because he gives very specific problems, let's say, or let's call them um, possibilities or whatever you want to say that's more positive than problems. But then he brings in a very specific solution for that problem. And so um, each different season requires a different approach to help that person grow in the Lord. And I love that it's so specific because he could just say, hey guys, just love one another. We, that's repeated throughout the whole scripture. Um, love God, love others, the two greatest commandments. Well, this, this gets so practical and breaks down that love and says, okay, this is how you love this kind of person when they're going through this problem and this is how you love that kind of person when they're going through that struggle. So he breaks it down and gets very specific, but there's one character quality in the text that applies to all the seasons, and that is found there at the end of verse 14, be patient with who? All. So everything we're gonna look at is going to be with patience, with patience. And patience, I mean, we could probably define it in different ways, but the thing I wanna focus on is patience is really simply don't lose your temper. And control, that's that self-control, that no matter how frustrating that other believer is, my fellow church member or or, uh, worshiper is, I'm not allowed to lose my temper with them. I'm not allowed to allow my emotions to control how I respond to that person. Be patient with all. No matter what the issue is, Patience overshadows all the other things, whatever it is. Patience takes precedence. So uh, no matter what season of life a person is, patience is required to properly approach them. So I have four things that we're going to look at. Letter A, if you fill in blanks on your thing, on your um, study guide, counsel with patience, counsel with patience. Sometimes we need to come alongside and counsel, and let's see those that we need to counsel. Go, going back to our verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Warn those who are unruly. Um, the word warn here is actually the same Greek word we saw back in verse 12 when we were looking at how do we identify leaders within a church. And there it was translated admonish, here it's translated warn, but it's the same word. It's that Greek word nutheteo. It's from whence the word nuthetic was coined, that uh, meaning a biblical approach to counseling that simply believes in the sufficiency of scripture to meet man's deepest needs. And so as we come alongside one another, and we're gonna talk about what it means to be unruly, but our attitude should be one of this warning, this nutheteo literally means to put into mind. It means to caution, to reprove gently. Oops, I went too far. To confront in love. It actually has the essence of a confrontation, but one that's done in love. 
So it actually means going to a, pro- a person that's unruly and in love confronting them to help them. Remember, this is all done with what? Patience. Patience. Well, what is an unruly person? Well, that means um, a disorderly person or someone that's insubordinate. Now, verses 12 and 13, we're talking about recognizing what, what type of person within the church. Starts with an L. Leaders, right? We just talked about that um, last two weeks ago and then this morning just briefly touched on it. So you've got a leadership structure within a church. Hebrews told us that we're supposed to obey and submit. So I really believe that this first issue, since he just got done talking about leadership and how we respond to church leaders, I believe this is the question might come up, well, Paul, what do we do when a believer doesn't want to follow the leader? This is what we do. We warn them. So we warn the unruly. We nutheteo them. And so uh, this is the type of believer that is out of step with the vision of the leadership. It's what I'll call a rogue sheep that has left the main flock and is going off by themselves to try to uh, create their own vision, their own mission, moving forward and moving away from the leaders that God has put in place within the local church and saying, I don't really like how that leader or those leaders are doing things. I'm gonna go over here and, and do my own thing. And the problem with that type of mentality is it often brings other sheep along with them. And so now you have, now you have a dissension. You have a dissection, a splintering within the body. And it can happen subtly, it can happen slowly over time, but it can happen. And that rogue sheep is creating an undercurrent of negativity. Exactly, exactly. The, the things that God hates in Proverbs 6, one of them is discord, those that sow discord among the brethren. So that's exactly what this um, unruly person is doing. And who are they really fighting against? God, right? Because it, we've already established, we've taken away all the caveats of, well, is the leader really biblically sound? Are they mature? We've already said, yes, they are. And if that is true, then these, this is our, our uh, call from God, how we respond to them. This is the only way, the only option we have is to respond in, in respect and esteeming them, and we talked about that already. So we have this rogue sheep, and they're doing their own thing rather than supporting the work that God is doing among the people. So how do we handle this person or these people? We warn them. We come alongside them, and we use Scripture then as our authority and our guide. Uh, A similar passage out of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man, that means a person, so um, man or woman, is overtaken in any trespass. So this is going beyond just being unruly. This is literally anything. So um, being unruly fits in the category. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So there is a condition that a person must meet. What is the condition in order to go and do this? You who are what? Yeah, exactly. Walking in the spirit. Spiritual. Yes, spiritually uh, restored. So, um, and then in verse two, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what are the burdens? Well, they're the sins that he talked about in verse number one. And we're called to come alongside with scripture 
and lovingly warned them. And why do we warn people about anything? It's for their own good, right? And yeah, to warn them of the danger that's, that's approaching if they, don't, um, if they don't turn. And several implications come to my mind as we think about this. First of all, we have to, and this came up a couple weeks ago, I think, we have to know what this book says if we are going to bring it to bear against these kind of issues. If we don't really know what the Bible says and we just have this kind of general concept, how will we be able to specifically help a person that has turned against church leadership and bring them back? And that's, that's what it's all about. Notice the word restore there. It's never to push away or to wag our finger and say, you, you need to get out of here. It's, you know, you, it's my way or the highway kind of a thing. And that is, by the way, is not a spiritual leader. So if anybody's doing that, that's unspiritual. Um, but we need to be able to come along and understand that the point of all of this is to bring the rogue sheep back into the fold, not to push them away further. And so that can be hard because emotions start to get involved because we might feel loyal or we, we've been working hard and diligent and pursuing ministry and, and, and walking and following the vision and then this person wants to pull away and we get offended because we've been doing the hard work and now they're off doing this and they're pulling people with them and you have those church splits. I don't even like to say that word, but you have it happening and splintering and coming apart because of that and our emotions can get in the way. But what are we supposed to be in all of these things? Patient. So we cannot allow emotions to control. And so we need to gently and lovingly warn them. The, the whole point of it is to bring them back. So we have to know scripture. I think we also need a position or a platform to speak into their life. This cannot be the first conversation you ever have with this person. Of, you know, I've ne- we've never talked before. Hi, my name is so-and-so. You're, you're living in sin. I mean, sometimes there might be a call for that, and sometimes people will respond to that. But generally speaking, you really ought to try to get to know them and try to establish some kind of a, a relationship with them. Um, so we, we need to know the word. We need to have a relationship. And we also need to have discernment. So sometimes things look a certain way, and they're not that way. So we need to make sure we understand the situation totally before we just make a judgment call and go in and, and try to make things right. And if, but if we're doing it in patience and we're doing it in love, then all of what I just said is gonna come very naturally to us. But if we're doing it on our own agenda and we got a chip on our shoulder because we don't like what this person is doing, it's, it's not going to help. It's gonna be very unhelpful. In fact, it'll be counterproductive to do that. Um, and then of course, patience. We're doing this with patience. You know. If this person is that invested in kind of going their own way that they've taken the steps enough that you notice, um, one conversation with you is probably not going to bring them back. Um, We might need to have an ongoing relationship of restoration and being bold and confronting in love, but, but it might take time. So again, patience, be patient with all. So we counsel with patience and then letter B, we comfort with patience. We comfort with patience. And again, looking at our verse uh, 14, it says, uh, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. And the next one, comfort the faint-hearted. Comfort the faint-hearted. So this is another, we've got this one season of life of unruliness. And now we have this second season that people can 
slip in and out of, and that is faint-heartedness. And we, we are called to comfort them. Um, this, these are Christians, fellow believers, that have succumbed to fear. This is a fearful person. Uh, they're fearful maybe to move out for God. Maybe they're fearful to share the gospel with someone. Uh, for whatever reason, fear has crept in. You see them pulling away, pulling back from being social because they're, they're in a season of fear. They're shrinking away from life. Tell you what they don't need is to be scolded. Hey, you used to do this and I don't see you involved anymore or whatever the case might be. They, they don't need to be scolded. Uh, they don't need a pep talk from you. They're not looking for that. And, and they, don't, they don't really need that. What they need is for someone to come alongside them and put their arm around them, that exhorting that we talked about, and say, come on, uh, let's do this thing together. I'm with you. I know you're afraid. I know you're struggling with fear. Um, but I want to be there with you. Uh, the word comfort, there is another alongside. That para word is used several different, uh, in several different ways, and it always has to do with coming alongside. This, this is how we help those that are fearful. We um, relate near to them, to relate near, to try to relate to. We encourage them and console them as they're struggling with uh, their fear. It's not saying, what do you think you're doing? Why are you doing that? It's more like, I want to understand what you are dealing with. I want to try to come alongside. I'm here for you. So we need to find a way to relate to the fear that they're going through so we can assist them because what's the end goal? What does a person who is dealing with fear need the most? Security? Security. Love. Love? What about courage? They, that's what encourage means. It means to give courage. They need courage. So we can't bring that kind of courage uh, with a, a judgmental type of attitude. Um, again, those in the faint-hearted season, just like those in the, that are unruly, those that are faint-hearted, they need patience. They aren't going to just flip a switch and be okay. It's going to take some time, and comforting takes time. Uh, we saw this word already back in 1 Thessalonians 2.11 where he describes the ideal father. If you remember, we talked about the ideal family and the church family. The ideal father uh, says, you know, Paul says to them, you know how we exhorted you and comforted you, that's the word there again, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So he's just bringing that word back into use again. And then there's also another use of it in John 11. And it's used twice in the chapter, but in 1119, of course, Lazarus um, has just died, and Jesus finally comes on the scene, waiting on purpose for everything to get in, into position so, so he can raise Lazarus from the dead. But right before that happens, uh, the Bible says that many of the Jews came around Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, to comfort them concerning their brother. And so this is, again, the same word used. And sometimes a person is faint-hearted. They are fearful because of loss, especially the loss of a spouse or other significant loved one. That can bring feelings of intense fear. Sometimes it seems irrational. Why are they worried about that? Why are they afraid? Uh, 
if you have not gone through it, it doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it's a fear of just uh, being with people. It's a fear of, of a new normal again. And so it's very, very intimidating, and there's a strong pull to just kind of give up and kind of pull back. And so it's easy for someone on the outside looking in to be very impatient with them. Um, why, aren't, why aren't they doing what they've always done? Why aren't they, it's been a while now. Why aren't they moving forward with their life? Because it, it, it's not, that the timeline is, is not for us to judge. Uh, we want people to get better. We want them to move past things and to, and to flourish. Um, but sometimes, again, what, what are we applying to all of these? What word? Patience. So we come to them with patience again. Your hand was up. Mm-hmm. The person is comforted by others around them. When are they most vulnerable? When do they feel hurt the most? When they're alone. Yeah. You see, people get themselves into bad relationships because I don't want to be alone, so I'll put up with all the abuse, I'll put up with all the bad stuff because I don't want to be alone. There's comfort in having others around. Yeah. Yeah, the comfort of others just being there. And again, sometimes fear comes in and says, you don't want to be with people. It's too much. It's too heavy of a burden, and they retract. Uh, we need to make sure we're comforting them with patience. So we're to counsel with patience. We're to comfort with patience. And then thirdly, we're to carry with patience. Looking back at our verse again, verse 14. Uh, now we exhort you, brethren, warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted. And then it says, uphold the weak, uphold them. So this word uphold, and this is where word studies come so valuable when in passages like this, you have these different words. Um, uphold means to adhere to, to care for, or to support, to lift up. And I'm using the word carry, to carry them. They need to be carried along. Um, the weak here are probably those, it could be physical weakness, but it's probably talking about those who are spiritually immature. In other words, they're weak in their faith. And so as a baby Christian comes into a church, they have a lot of growing to do. And just like a human infant needs to be carried, so a new Christian needs to be carried. Uh, These are the ones Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Um, there was a lot of issues in the church at Corinth, of course, and one of them was, well, should we eat the meat that was offered down at the temple, at the pagan temple? Uh, can we eat that meat? And, of course, there was liberty to do that, but Paul was warning them, don't use your liberty to create a problem for a less mature believer. And that's what he's saying here. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak, speaking about being weak in the faith. And so, um, so these new believers, and, and they can be, you know, we don't have meat offered idols today, so we're not dealing with this specific issue, but we have other things that we deal with and that people deal with. Um, a new believer might be holding on to something from their past, perhaps a religious tradition that they're having a hard time letting go. Um, perhaps it's a bad habit that they just, it's, it's a battle 
that they have, an addiction perhaps. Perhaps it's um, poor moral behavior, a lifestyle choice, or something along that line. And they are literally a baby Christian. They've maybe read the Bible a little, but the spirit wasn't in them to enlighten it. They're not fully understanding how a Christian's supposed to live. And so they're, they're saved, but they don't know any better. And so they need to be carried along um, at times. And so we need to, again, do this with patience. Notice that we're supposed to carry the weak, not condemn them. And I'm thinking about when, when I see um, parents of small children that are just learning to walk. You know, that little child has been crawling, they're pulling up on furniture, and now they're starting to kind of take steps, and they're out of balance, they're, they're tipping over, they, they lose their balance really easily. And I don't, I've never really seen this, um, I hope I never do see this, where a parent of a child that's learning to walk <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't saying push him down. <laughs> but sees their child fall a distance away and just kind of stands there and says, what do you think you're doing? Get up and walk. I saw you take those couple steps. You can do it. No, and they're, they fell down. Maybe they scraped their knee and they're crying and they're hurting. What does the parent do? They go right over to where they are. We, the parent cannot carry someone from a distance it requires them to move in the direction of their child and scoop them up and hold them and carry them for a while. Like when, you know, a family might be on vacation or on a walk and the older kids are just doing, you know, doing just fine and the parents, of course, are walking along and here comes the little one that has just learned to walk and their legs are a lot shorter and they're trying, but they're slow. So what does mom and dad do? We man, we got to get home before, you know, dinner. So let's scoop them up and we'll carry them the rest of the way. And that's exactly what new believers need at times is for mature believers to come alongside and carry them, um, not condemn them. Um, even good advice will come across as condemnation when we give it from a distance. We stand back with our arms crossed and look at them and say, well, I can't believe you're living like that. Christians don't do that. Christians don't live that way. Um, when we were at the Refresh, refresh Conference, uh, I think it was the last speaker, I think it was the, the president of faith was talking about the church that he was pastoring up in Canada. And they started reaching out and they saw their church starting to grow and a couple came and they got saved and they started discipling them. Well, they had a few children, but they were not married and living together. And uh, this pastor had to finally go to them uh, and say, guys, we love you, but here's the, the scripture and this is what it says. And, and I just, I really want to encourage you that how you're living is not what God, it's not the best thing for you. It's not God's best for you. And so I want you to consider this. And, and they took it really well. And he ended up, and then they got married, I think just a few months later, if I remember, and, and came back together. And it was, it was a wonderful story. But if that pastor after they got saved, had immediately gone after them and been aggressive and, and talked down to them, what would have happened to that couple? They would, they would have never, they'd been long gone. He would have never seen them again and never had an opportunity to minister to them. So uh, young Christians, those that are recently saved or immature in the faith, 
require life-on-life relationship. That's called discipleship. Yes? Okay. A trellis, yeah. And, and the thing that's interesting about the trellis is that you can't tie them, the plant, too tightly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to keep it from growing well, right? Yes. So it's like you have to know when to let go, too. Yeah. I think of my daughter, when she's raising her kids, she tends to say, oh, don't, don't pick them up, let them walk. They're, they're fine, you know, they're crying, leave them alone, they'll yeah. be fine. You know, that idea, too. Yeah. So Yeah, there's a balance there. There's a balance there. And once they know the truth, now they're accountable to it. And so then you, you just keep working with them and helping them and getting them going, just like a, a parent does with the child. Yeah. Using the dynamics of a family, in the church family, the new believers are the children. You've got kids. Yeah. The youngest usually require the most effort, the most time, to which the older kids can, well, look, if they're taking all the time with the young one. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was required because there were just so many we have to come alongside. Yeah. The leadership can't do it. Right. It's going to require the whole. Yeah, that's a great point. If you couldn't hear what he said, it's it requires the whole body. Uh pastor cannot disciple every person that gets saved in the church. He cannot he he doesn't have the bandwidth to as hard as he works and hours he pours in to meet <coughs> meet with every single person all the time and all the places and like no person can do that. It requires us all as believers to look for those that need to be carried and then know when to set them down to Barbara's point and help them. And remember, um, all of this requires patience. Not allowing emotions to get in the way, not allowing ourselves to just want to come down hard on them, but being patient with them. All right, let's move on. And we already said that. We cannot carry someone from a distance. We only end up condemning them. So when, as, we, as we connect with people and we see they're struggling, they're weak in their faith, we need to go to them. Don't wait for them to come to us. We need to go to them and encourage them and build a relationship. And after the relationship is built, then we can start helping them see some of these things. So hopefully that, that is encouraging and makes sense. And the fourth thing, we need to conciliate with patience. Conciliate. And that's in verse number 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. It's human nature to take revenge. You get pushed, your immediate fleshly response is push back. You get hurt, you immediately tend, at least most of us, tend to want to hurt back. And there's fight and flight responses to these things. But revenge often comes to the service. But what does God have to say about it? Let's quickly look at some different passages. Romans 12, we're actually going to go all the way to 21, 17 to 21. Repay no evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, whatever your responsibility you have, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God is going to make every wrong right in the end. 
He's, it's, but his, his timing, and he's the authority of it, he has not given us the authority to avenge ourselves. We're going to see that as we go through. Verse 20, therefore, uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. So doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil uh, with good. Let's keep going. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So another instruction from the Apostle Peter. And then Jesus in Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Notice Jesus does not say, love those who are definitely in the wrong. He just says, love your enemies. And I'm not going to make a big point of it, but I think sometimes we need to consider that our enemies that we think are, see as our enemies aren't always the ones uh, that are in the wrong. Sometimes uh, we need to reevaluate our position on certain things. So the scripture is clear. Uh, we don't have the freedom to give paybacks anywhere in scripture. Nowhere in the Bible that I found, and some are more learned, so if you come to a passage, please let me know and I'll uh, correct my statement. Nowhere in the scripture are we given the freedom to take revenge on people. I don't see it anywhere. And in fact, in our passage, um, it's, it, there's some words. We'll look at those in a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, in Matthew, oh, I didn't put it up there. So revenge, what, what is revenge? Well, it can be a lot of different things. Uh, it can be in the eye for an eye kind of a thing. Well, he did this, she did this. I'm going to get them back. It can be the way that we look at one another. Uh, it can be the, the way that we slander. We go, instead of talking to the person we have a problem with, we go talk to three or four other people. I can't believe how bad. Can you believe what he did, what she said, whatever? Um, we can take revenge in the way we withdraw from people and our coldness. And we talk about some people, you know, that are upset. Man, they walk in the room and it drops 30 degrees, and we talk about that. Um, and then something that Paul probably didn't have to deal with, but social media revenge, how people use social media and they weaponize it and they make posts and they block people and unfriend them and do all these things. Uh, getting hurt by someone is never a good experience, especially from people that should and do know better. But how are we supposed to respond to them? Well, we've already looked at a few verses. Let's go back to our main text here. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Notice the word no one and anyone. Those are all inclusive words. Uh, there's no exception to this rule. We're not given any freedom to take revenge on people that have hurt us. None. Anywhere in scripture that I have found. But then he says, this is what you are to do. Pursue what is good. Pursue what is good. This is an active pursuit of the best possible outcome for everyone involved. An active pursuit of the best possible outcome for everyone involved. What is the best thing? There's friction, there's um, strife between believers. What is the best thing that could happen? What do you think? His will be done. Okay, well, what is his will? 
reconciliation, right? Now, I'm talking about between, between believers, okay? So they're already saved. The thing that is good is reconciliation. Now, different circumstances, it might look a little bit different, different contexts, um, but that's, that's the point, is that we need to be pursuing reconciliation. Sometimes, again, we're talking about using that word patience, keep coming back to that. It might take a while for that to happen, but are we willing for it to? A couple other passages. It's easy to do this with the people we consider, my, you know, my people, my peeps, people that I'm tight with. That's what Jesus was saying. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Um, but what about those who hurt me? Well, again, uh, in Matthew 5, 38 and 39, Jesus said, uh, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, um, equal revenge type of a thing. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus was not saying let people beat you up, okay? In the first century culture, it was customary to greet a friend with a kiss on the cheek, even for the men. That's what made Judas's uh, betrayal so hurtful was that he used a kiss to identify Jesus in the darkness of the garden so the soldiers knew who to arrest. Uh, but that was the customary thing was to greet with a kiss. And so this statement by Christ is not turn your cheek to be hit again. It's you, you've been hurt. Now turn the cheek and and ask for the kiss, ask for the reconciliation. Now, there might be a time between the slap on the face and when you do this, it might not be immediate, but this is all about forgiveness. Like, I've been hurt by you, you slap my face, I'm going to be vulnerable enough and be willing enough to reach back out to you to try to restore our fellowship, and I'm gonna offer this cheek, will you kiss this cheek this time? instead of slapping it. <laughs> That's very hard to do. Yes? Maybe if I'm, if I'm thinking right, the Old Testament, the eye for an eye and tooth for the tooth wasn't about revenge as much as it was about justice. Yes, it, was, it would have been carried out, in a, I believe, in the court, in the court of law, per se. the justice out of your hands. Yes, yes. It's all, yeah, if you couldn't hear what she said, it's all about justice um, and taking the justice out of our hands. We're gonna get to this verse um, when we get a little farther. Um, this kind of helps us understand some of the context of um, Paul's, Paul's day. And, of course, the, when Jesus was there in the, that first century, um, this is how you greeted one another. This is our version of a handshake um, at this time. So let's go back to our um, verse here. Pursuing what is good both for yourselves and for all. The, the good that we are to pursue is the best outcome for all parties involved the best outcome is restoration and fellowship is it always possible no sadly it's not but it is what we are to be pursuing and notice the word all at the end our pursuit of reconciliation benefits the entire church family when there is division in one area just like when a body hurts in one area the whole body is affected that that division will ripple through the flock and cause potentially other problems and distract us from our mission and what we're supposed to be accomplishing. But when there's reconciliation and everyone that's around there sees it and now there's this beautiful 
connection and this fellowship and relationship has been restored. That Think of the positive effect of that through, through a flock, through a congregation of people that are willing to come together. Okay, we're, we're a couple minutes past our time, um, and I skipped this the last time we were together. We're in a Bible reading challenge, so, um, and I know we'll, we'll just take a couple minutes. I apologize that we're late. But um, what, what we challenged ourselves to do is read the Bible through, and we're doing the five-day plan. Some of you are doing all different reading plans, or maybe you're just reading and not following a plan. That's okay, too. But I, I challenged um, our class with, hey, as you're reading throughout the week, find something, a verse maybe, or just something that God speaks to you about and says, hey, this, this was really meaningful to me this week as I was reading Scripture. And so I'm put out there for at least, at least get a couple, hopefully, uh, what what was your sentence this week? Anybody want to share a verse or just and just have to keep it really brief because of our time? But what has God been speaking to you about um, this week in the Word? Yes, Gail. That's true. It's all about the spirit. Yeah. Okay. God care for us. Amen. Yeah, that's okay. Sounds like you're on the right track, Gail. Thank you. Good job. Amen. 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 That's great. Who else? Anybody else? A verse of scripture, um, just something the Lord's been teaching you this week as you're reading? Yes, ma'am. I'm I'm reading through Matthew. Okay. Okay. First. Amen. One more. One more. Anybody? What's God been telling you this week through his word? Yes, Mark. Psalm 103:19. The Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is very comforting. Amen. That God's kingdom is ruling over all. Amen. God's kingdom, yes. Uh, in, our, in our reading plan, we're in Exodus right now, and I was really uh, touched by, as they're told to build the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and all that gets instituted, the purpose for all of that was so that God because God wanted to dwell with his people. That was the purpose so he could come down and dwell with them. And I was really encouraged by that fact that God Almighty still today wants to dwell uh, with us. Father, we do thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for the very specific instructions that were given here in 1 Thessalonians 5 of how to help others as, as they go through these different seasons of life. 
whether it's unruliness or faintheartedness or fear or, or a weak in our faith, uh, whether we come into a situation where we are hurt by someone else and uh, we want to take revenge, I just pray, Lord, that you would use uh, the truth of your word to just integrate itself into our lives. Uh, help us, Lord, to follow the instructions and to uh, continue to pursue what is good for us and for, for all of us, Lord. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.